0: Hey, Cyber Nerds, we're back with the fourth episode of Scary Mary Podcast, and we have a very special guest today joining the one and only Scary Mary. Yes, thank you, Lindsay. Today, I have with me a very special guest, Sean Conrad with Epic. Um, Sean and I have been doing a lot of work specifically with his clients, um, trying to get them educated and on board with Crown Jewel Protector. Um, We are spending a lot of time in the market with Sean and others trying to make sure that they're aware that we have this crown jewel protector process, which we have tons of information out on the internet and on previous podcasts already about what crown jewel protector is. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. But I thought one of the um, most interesting things for our audience would be to find out from somebody who's in the field, kind of how, how they see the value of it, Um, you know, sort of, how their how their customers are reacting to it. What do you think the most valuable parts of this are? And we're just going to have a candid conversation about that. So, Sean, I'll let you do a little bit more on your background, but you are a very senior person within the Epic family. And um, I know you've got a big uh, following on LinkedIn and other social media. So lots of folks are going to know who you are already, but go ahead.
1: Well, thanks, Mary. It's great to be with you today. And I've been looking forward to this conversation uh, since we put it on the calendar. Um, I think what you're doing is really, really interesting for this reason. And I hope that your audience is already exposed to it. But how do you make the intangible tangible? And that's really what you're doing with this crown jewel protector suite of products and services. And that's why I'm really excited about it and really be with you today. You know, if you look at the stats, it's fascinating to me. You know, the S&P 500, about 90% of its entire value is linked with intangible assets. They're hard to value. They're hard to protect. And yet everybody agrees there is some value in that. So what we're doing here together with Crown Jewel and, and the Protector Suite is really important in my view for almost every business. Every business has trade secrets. They have IP that's valuable to them. We have a way now with your health to value that accurately and protect it. And we can create an asset on the balance sheet of that business while simultaneously protecting it. I think that's one of the most important things that we can do as consultants and advisors for those businesses and as you and i have talked about many times it runs the gamut of nearly every industry every type of company you can imagine every size they all have things of value in this category so um, i love innovation too and i approach this as uh, a business person first um, and really thinking if i put myself in the shoes of our clients, you know, I'm fortunate to work with a lot of innovative companies that are creating or implementing new technologies, they're high growth. Um I'm an investor too, so I look at it through that lens of how can I maximize value of things that I'm involved in. And so for all of those reasons, this has me very, very interested.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, one of the things that I think maybe gets lost on some, some people when they think about this. You know, We tend to put a lens on it immediately as an insurance offering with services wrapped around it because we come from the insurance industry and we live around risk issues and helping clients address those issues. And although this is a really innovative insurance product and I'm, we're super proud of that and excited to be able to, to offer a product that is a first party trade secret product, there's nothing else like it in the market. Um, I think the valuation and frankly, the blockchain platform that we're giving these clients to help them create the proof and the evidence that they're going to need if they eventually ever have to pursue their trade secret litigation rights um, is something that is absolutely huge. Um, So so as you mentioned, you know, the, the process that we've come up with, Um, helps monetize intangible assets and turn them into something that we can ensure as though they're tangible. Um, But we also are, know building um building evidentiary in an evidentiary case that we eventually would need in the in the event of a misappropriation event and i think that's equally as important so um let me ask you when you talk to clients about um the upfront part of this which includes the identification of the trade secret assets you know kind of indexing those and putting some metadata around how many man hours uh, or people hours um, correction, it's taken to develop those and what the future value of those assets are. It, do you get the sense that a lot of companies have thought about that and gone to the link to do that? My experience is, is no, but I'd be interested to find out if you've run into any size client that really has put enough time and energy into that.
1: You know, I was still waiting for that moment, Mary, where I find a client that has said they, they really do have an appreciation for how much is invested in the development of whatever those trade secrets are. I think, as you said so well, almost no company has a full appreciation for that. And this 12-week underwriting process, if you will, that will take that client through together is really an exploratory one. I think they are surprised when they go down that road of we do have something of uh, extreme value here. And so I think it's an underappreciated asset within those companies. And those that have been responsible for the trade development of those trade secrets or that IP are seen as key people that's that's valuable information. But I don't think the companies have drawn the correlation yet of either the time invested to develop that or what it's worth, once it becomes a tangible asset. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the thing that's going to really open up everyone's eyes. And what I'm perhaps most excited about is the fact that we have an enterprise value creation opportunity here, leveraging an insurance product. And that's a really unique thing. And I think once people figure that out, um, I hope you and I are the the go-to sources for that, for companies that can see, okay, we have something of value here. This is a unique process. We can come out the other side of it with not only protection, monitoring, but also now an asset that they can borrow against and treat just as they would a piece of real estate or other traditional asset in their business.
0: Exactly. It's so exciting, isn't it? To try to figure out something new to help you help your clients, especially those that are coming out. I, I get super excited about this because I get to play a little tiny role in helping innovative companies who are doing game changing, literally life-saving types of technologies or environment saving technologies help them get more money and get better investors and all of those kinds of things by putting protection behind those assets. And to me, that's the most exciting thing that we can be doing in an industry, not to mention that we can cover cannabis, which is also kind of fun. Um, You know, we, we talked a little bit about this, Sean, that there is, a crazy amount of intellectual property in the cannabis industry um, around the development of plants and how they work and how they're harvested and and the recipes that go into, you know, edibles and all kinds of things um, that I think is a largely untapped market. And if you just think about all the various industries where that applies over and over again, um, it really can be, I mean, it's trillions of dollars of assets that are unprotected right now. And when you think about it, it's just mind boggling that we as an industry haven't figured out a way to address this up until now. And and certainly this will evolve and there'll be more capital coming in, but it's really exciting. Um, One of the other things that I think is a misconception, and I don't know if you've run into this issue as well, is that I think some kind of generalists, I'll say, and even um, some people who play in the intellectual property space sort of think that companies are either, they either are patent heavy companies or they don't patent things. And the reality of it is that most companies that have a significant patent portfolio have an even more significant trade secret portfolio. They just haven't valued it yet because everything that's in that R&D supply chain that hasn't been applied for patent protection yet, that's the date and time that it becomes public information, which makes it no longer a trade secret. But up until then, it's a trade secret asset, assuming that it's got all the proper protections around it and that it provides intrinsic value to your organization and all the things that make the definition of trade secret. But do you get the sense that people really understand the difference between patented technology and trade secrets?
1: I don't. Uh, I think if you talk to attorneys that work in this space, they do, but I think within companies, the, the decision makers that you and I are talking to, you know, case in point is, is one of the conversations that I think we'll have at some point. A you know, company in a tech space with a CEO who's very bright, has a patent portfolio, but a whole wide array of trade secrets. that's probably 10x the size of the patent portfolio. is out raising capital and what's talked about to the investor community. The patent protection. Exactly. But there is little discussion about the trade secret component of it. Yet, I know from my own research on this particular company, and this is just categorically true across the board, that trade secret portfolio is larger than the patent portfolio in, in almost every case. So, that is not talked about enough. I think it's underappreciated by those business leaders. And that's where you're solving a, a very, very important need. The last thing I want to go back to is something you said a minute ago, which is the correlation between companies interested in crown protector and the fact that these are high growth companies solving big problems in the world. And so that also is going to attract capital. So you're really at the intersection of technology, innovation, capital, looking to go to work in those places. And this is a really underappreciated component of that. I think people will figure it out as we get busy and start having more of these conversations with people. And they learn about the value of not only the protection that goes with it the monitoring but also the fact that we're going to create enterprise value at the same time
0: that's a great point thank you for for validating that um <clears throat> in terms of the kind of the the value proposition post misappropriation um and it's something that not a lot of folks have focused on as much um, and certainly there still are aren't, aren't a ton of people who even know about this product yet which is the point of these podcasts um, but one of the things that we're doing on the back end is if there is a misappropriation event or a suspected misappropriation event that would trigger the coverage or, or we're not sure yet whether or not it would trigger the actual policy, um, but there is a suspected theft or misappropriation of a trade secret asset, we will actually bring in the investigative team to do the forensics work to help determine the source and scope of that misappropriation, whether it's a quote unquote security breach via a hack or some other technical breach or whether or not it's some other nefarious, just former employee you know, engineers that went to work for another company and took a bunch of paper copies of documents with them when they left. Um, but once that source and scope has been determined, then Theoretically, um, with the blockchain evidence that we've already developed in the first, in the underwriting part of this, where they're documenting the metadata on a blockchain about all the development of their trade secret assets, we should have the proof that we need to then go to the judge and ask for what's called an ex parte seizure order. Um, that's something that is specifically built into the Defend Trade Secrets Act of 2016, where if we can show a judge And there are several specifically appointed around the country that are schooled, obviously, in trade secret law um, that will rule on whether or not you have enough evidence to show that the the compromise or the acting upon or misappropriation of a particular trade secret asset is so detrimental to your company and the value of your company that they will give you The ability to go in and seize, literally seize the assets of the misappropriating party and look through their network and their laptops and their portable devices and see whether or not things have been emailed, copied, posted on the dark web, sold, et cetera. Um, And that, in and of itself, is normally an expensive and time consuming value proposition. Just proving that the trade secrets were yours in the first place. oftentimes can take months and months of discovery. And we're taking that off the table by saying we've got it already built into this technology platform. You don't need to spend months and months and millions of dollars on discovery. Now, looking back after a breach or misappropriation, trying to define what the asset was and show that it was yours, we've done that already. Now we're going to go get an ex parte seizure order and hopefully put the genie back in the bottle before we ever have to pay actual damages. And so that's, you know, that's something that I would think would be super valuable to clients that they, you know, again, not a lot of people even know that there's this possibility to get an ex parte seizure order. But that goes out the window if you don't know something's been misappropriated and you don't have the ability to prove that the asset was yours. So.
1: Very well said. I think a couple things people don't know that that's a possibility. I think going back to ownership, that's the first hurdle, right? Did was it actually yours? Um, I've seen clients waste millions and millions of dollars pursuing. I think it's the former employee that starts to work for a competitor. That's the most common occurrence that we will see. Yes, the breaches are are there. That's that's a reality. Um, But I think in most cases, it's going to be the employee who figures out. The trade secret of the ip in a business and is enticed by a competitor or they want to go start their own company and it's a challenge right so the way you're solving for that i think is brilliant and i think when everybody is exposed to it they'll say that's valuable we, we need to go through this underwriting process and really document that we own that trade secret that ip it's now on blockchain it's it's irrefutable And if we are compromised at some point from that former employee or a breach event, we can prove that it was ours. So I think you're solving a very, very important piece of the puzzle where it's I think today it's it's tough to prove.
0: Yeah. and, And one of the other things that we are embedding into the underwriting process that I think is something that a lot of companies don't have a true appreciation for is that employment law actually comes in um, in spades, and it becomes a very important issue around misappropriation of trade secrets from former employees. And what I mean by that is that they're non-competes and non-disclosure agreements that either are part of or completely separate, but usually a contractual obligation between themselves and their employer. So it could be part of an employment contract, but it could be totally separate. And what I have learned, um, and I'm not an attorney, let me just say that. I say that a lot just to make sure people don't mistake me for one. Um, I sometimes play one on TV, but from the attorneys, uh, Mark Halligan in particular, I'll call him out on this, who has been, you know, extremely valuable in my education on this, have said, you know, it's your trade secret asset protection, um, the people who work on those projects by definition, um, need to have different non-disclosure and non-compete wording in their contracts um, most of the time. And but you don't want to have it be so broad that the court's going to say this is unenforceable and you don't want to have your documentation policies and procedures say that everything is confidential and proprietary information because then it becomes worthless. And so I think a lot of companies make those types of mistakes as well. They make their non-compete, non-disclosure agreements too broad and their documentation policies so broad and just say that everything's confidential. Nobody can ever work for anyone else or even take an idea that they had when they worked here or a thought that they had three years ago and take it with them when they leave. And that's just not a realistic um, thing. So, So we do look at those policies and procedures and the wording in some of those contracts and go back to the client with a lot of recommendations around those types of things, their information security policies and procedures, their exit interview strategies and things like that. So the client ends up with a much more robust kind of information, you know, valuable information asset protection policy, if you will, um, as part of the process. I think that's a really
1: interesting component and probably not something people think about on the front end when we raise this topic, but the human behavior component and the internal policies, procedures that they have in place are that you can't separate the two because you have a human element. So I think that's a really valuable part of this service and experience, and probably not something clients, contemplate when they begin this journey with us, but something that I think will be of extreme value as they go through
0: it. Absolutely. And then, you know, one of the other things that comes up all the time and we'll just hit this head on is that um, there is, a lot of noise and a lot of news, and you know, pro- appropriately so. When when there's a hacking event or a, a theft or misappropriation event that involves a Chinese or a Russian or some other foreign nation-sponsored, um, you know, organization, or theoretically there's a tie to a company back to China, um, you know, w- whether or not that's ultimately proven is a different question. Um, but is it realistic for us to expect on the back end? Uh, You know, this is now putting my carrier interest hat on as opposed to client interest hat saying is it realistic to expect that we can either seek damages from that third party if we're too late to get the ex parte seizure order and now we've moved to the damages phase where we're just, we're not trying to get the asset back anymore, the genie's out of the bottle, but we are are damn sure going to go after the misappropriating party and send them a message and try to get our money and then some. There's a treble damages component or multiple damages component to the DTSA, which is really impactful and very helpful for us in subrogation. On behalf of the client, Um, we at that point we've become the litigators for them and going after that misappropriating party. And we're now we're seeking damages on their behalf. Um, But one of the interesting things about that is that um, you know if we're able to again use that blockchain and all of the evidentiary things that we've been building up throughout the process to you know win. Um, win the case that it was our asset and it was in fact misappropriated and it was done so egregiously. um, Not only can we win against former employees who go somewhere for a domestic company and we can, you know, you can move up the chain through the company with the RICO statute that's built in um, to their subsidiary and the parent of that subsidiary, but we also can go after companies that are in China and other countries. And um, I do think that that is a big misconception. Um, Again, Mark Halligan wrote a a very significant and long um, detailed white paper about the U.S.-China trade agreement that specifically under the Trump administration um, was amended to, to address trade secret misappropriation and theft, and it switched the burden of proof. Um, for Chinese companies in the way that they defend trade secret allegations, um, trade secret misappropriation allegations, and that they have to prove that they didn't misappropriate the asset versus the other way around. And that was a pretty recent development. Um, and again, I think there's a sort of, you know, a lot of folks that we talk to go, well, I assume this is going to be a domestic policy only, or it's not going to cover theft if the, you know, misappropriation, if it was by a Chinese or a foreign, you know, you um, entity. And that's just not true. Um, And I don't know if, if, if you've run across that from some of your clients or if, you know, if there's confusion out there about that particular issue.
1: I think there's an assumption that it's domestic only. So I think that's one of those revelations that they'll have as they go through the process. Like, wow, okay, this is, this is broader than maybe we anticipated.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think um, we do have to have some of the assets have to be, the trade secret assets have to be physically located in the U.S. That's a jurisdictional issue, um, having to bring in the DTSA and other things. But the misappropriating party and where those assets end up, theoretically, can be anywhere in the world. Um, And so I think that's another interesting piece of that You know, I think there's an opportunity for us to expand this globally, where the assets can be sitting and hosted anywhere in the world. But um, you know, this is the first baby step for us, um, and it'll it'll take a village. I think somebody said that um, once upon a time to really build this market out, and we're hoping on we're hoping, you know, to bring other experts along, such as you, Sean, and and you know, a lot of the markets and even the derivatives, you know, markets and things like that to help us really get this off the ground. So, I appreciate your time and your thoughts today, Sean. Any any other parting advice or just things you wanted to comment on before we before I let you go?
1: Yeah, I think just for anybody who's listening and who might be thinking to themselves, I have an inventory of trade secrets in my business. I understand there's a process that's 12 weeks I'm sure a lot of people there are curious about it. if They go down this path with us. How long does this take to put together? Who should be involved? How much does it cost? If you can walk through that just in broad terms, I know every situation is different, but I'm sure people are curious to know more about some of the mechanics of how it works.
0: That's a great question. Okay, so yes, it is a relatively involved process, but we've tried to make it as simple as we can. Um, and really what we're doing is trying to develop an entire kind of an enterprise risk management process that can be dropped into an organization's already developed ERM program that mostly, frankly, will be looking focused almost exclusively on tangible assets at this point. There might be some operational risk things built in, but we're trying to jumpstart their intellectual property asset, uh, you know, sort of valuation and risk management process um, <clears throat> so the first thing we ask the client to do, <clears throat> and as you suggested, hopefully this is about a 12 week process, although a lot of that is, is very dependent upon the client themselves and how much time and energy they have to dedicate to Downloading or uploading um, the information around the, the, the metadata around the things that they think are trade secret assets into the trade secret examiner—that's step one. But simultaneously, while they're doing that, um, they will. By the way, they will assign several people within the organization to give them either access to the trade secret examiner. But ultimately, that will be controlled by one person, maybe the. Um, intellectual property in-house IP attorney, maybe the general counsel, or if you're not big enough to have your own IP counsel or GC, then you might use somebody externally who knows what they're doing and can identify things properly as a trade secret or not, uh, based on the definition of the trade secret. We put that information in first, so we're asking them to download that. Each trade secret asset only takes about five minutes to put the information in, as long as you know what that information is. But you might have to go to somebody in, say, um, legal to, you know, to take a look at how well protected th- those assets are from a non-disclosure, non-compete perspective. And you might have to go to somebody in operations to look at what the future, you know, um, expected income is from those assets. So there'll be various people who own different parts of that information that will co- cobble that together to fill out the kind of database led blockchain platform. At the same time, we would ask for additional information like examples of policies and procedures around access and um, other, other technology-based information security things, just like you would normally do for cyber. But then on top of that, we would look at sample non-disclosure, non-compete agreements, Um, whether or not they put in place an exit interview for people who are leaving. There's a short list of information that we want to review policy and procedure wise, like you would do if you're writing employment practices, liability coverage, and you want to see the HR handbook. That's kind of what we're doing, but around trade secret assets. And we're giving advice around where you can improve those types of things. That's all part of the underwriting. So simultaneously, those two things can be being done by the client giving us information around that. We then take that information and turn it into a submission to go to the market. Um, But only after we send in Alvarez and Marsal to validate the information that we've collected. Um, The third part of the information collection process is is collecting actual um, projected sales or expense um, decreases, if you will, whatever it is that makes that asset A crown jewel asset for you whether it's making you drive more sales or save a bunch of expenses it can go either way um we will there's a bunch of information that we need around how many man hours went into it all those kinds of things on an a m questionnaire we give that to them they come back with a valuation that we agree on for every trade secret asset we've now determined that those assets are defensible quote unquote as a trade secret using the blockchain then we go to market Um, All that first three, that first part takes about three or four weeks. Now we need another sort of three or four weeks in the market um, to go, you know, talk about kind of what we think the price should be and how much capacity we need and talk to the carriers. And then we come back with some proposals. There'll be additional questions. Um, But ultimately, we should be able to do all of that in sort of a 12 week time frame. And that's, that's allowing, you know, three or four weeks on the front end, Um, for the client to do the trade secret examiner part and fill out the valuation questionnaire and and do the security questionnaire. So there's a bit of information that needs to be gathered up front by various stakeholders.
1: And the other question, Mary, is also, what does this cost? If if I go through this process and we determine that the value of the trade secrets in my enterprise are $10 million, what, what would that typically cost a business if they're looking to protect that and move forward with this?
0: So... Typically speaking, um, you know, and there is no typical yet, so I, I say that sort of tongue in cheek, what we think is going to happen is that we're going to start with a 5% rate online-ish. Um, so if they're, you know, if they're buying a $10 million limit or a $20 million limit, the, you know, we expect the base premium to function as a 5%-ish um, rate online. Um, that will go up or down depending upon a lot of factors that come back to us as part of the underwriting process, like the defendability score or the defendability um, matrix that we're using internally that's part of the um, trade secret examiner. And it is defendability for our purposes, not defensibility. Um, So people will ask that question. Um, And the threat assessment that we get back from another company that we haven't even mentioned, another tech that we're using, um, a company called XCyber out of London that's um, providing threat assessment work for us. And that really looks not at security and not at internal policies and procedures, but just what the threat environment looks like for that company, that industry and the assets that they're developing. So if you're in an industry where there's a lot of political uh, hatred, you know, frankly, towards you because you're in, you know, oil and gas or something that could be really bad for the environment, or you're a defense contractor and our foreign um, adversaries are trying to get at what we're building from a defense standpoint. You're automatically a much likelier target than somebody who's making hair dryers. Um, and so there is a threat assessment score that goes around what, you, what your company looks like from, from, a, from a political and environmental standpoint, but also just the you know just the tech or whatever it is that you're innovating um, that will drive that premium either up or down and And, by the way, all the other, other policy all the other things that we're doing, the uh, the um, trade secret examiner and the valuation by Alvarez and Marsal, all of that is included in the premium as long as the client buys more than ten million in limit. We've kind of structured it that way. Um if they buy less than ten million, then everything will have to be paid for a la carte or, if they go through the f- initial trade secret examiner process and say, get a valuation by Alvarez and Marsal, but then they decide not to buy the insurance, then they will get a bill for that as well, because obviously we can't pay for all that stuff if there's no premium coming in.
1: Absolutely. And I think all of these co- companies will have values above 10 and I think we'll proceed at that level or, or above, depending upon the assets. Now, another question that I have been posed on a couple of occasions Everybody can think about the fang stocks and understand that there's a lot of IP wrapped up in those types of companies. You mentioned earlier in the conversation about companies that may have an in-house general counsel or in-house IP attorney. Let's talk about the middle market companies for a second. Maybe they're high growth, they're tech, they've got trade secrets and IP that's valuable, but they're not at a billion dollars in revenue yet. Is this just for the big guys or is there a play here in your view for those mid-market companies too?
0: No, there's a huge opportunity for mid-market companies and frankly, even startups. You know, if I'm a if I'm a venture capital fund and I'm investing in a portfolio of startup technology companies, whether that's med tech or ag tech or pick your pick your front end of, you know, followed by tech, um, by definition, those companies are being invested in by those venture capital funds because of their innovative ideas. Um, and if their innovation isn't protected by any other insurance, which it isn't, we know that for a fact, because only their tangible assets right now can be insured, um, then this might be the most valuable insurance those VC funds can require or offer to their portfolio companies. And now, not only are they insured, so the assets are protected, and you could potentially be named as a lost payee on that policy as a, either an investor, um, a lender, you know, or the VC fund. Um, but now you've got um, collateral um, that can be used to, you know, drive up you can drive up your valuation, but it also could get you better lending terms and better investment terms. So whether the company is really huge and they have a massive portfolio, we may not be able to get them the limits that they want yet, but still this would be a very valuable process for them. or whether or not it's a small, you know, all the way up through the medium-sized company who has a lot of innovation, a lot of tech, um, that is, that is their crown jewels. It is their, you know, their, um, what makes them different and better than their competition, then this is absolutely valuable to them as well.
1: And that's the part that I think I'm most excited about, as you know, from our conversations offline, it's that, that VC type of audience that has invested in companies and they don't have a way to protect that valuable IP. They know it's valuable. Yep. Today, there's no so this is where I think we serve a very, very important role. And I think what you've created here is brilliant. And I'm looking forward to seeing um, the success of it and contributing to that over time. as go.
0: Well, thank you so much, Sean. It's guys like you that, you know, I've just enjoyed all of this so much, getting to know some really smart people in this industry who continue to help me along this path. And I'm super excited. And thank you for your time. I really, really appreciate it. For everyone who's listening, if you want more information, there's a crazy amount of information on our website, which is www.crownjewelinsurance.com. We're also available on social media on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you so much for listening.